0: Good morning. It's good to be in worship together. I love that song. The Lord is in this place. Uh, we believe that um, whether you are here with us or whether you are online, we believe the Lord is at work um, and he's not just at work. He is at work in this place, but we believe his spirit is powerful enough to go beyond these walls. And I know that there are many of you who want to be here, uh, but for various reasons can't be. And we're glad for this technology that keeps us connected. And uh, we're just praying that uh, the Lord will help us in this time. I've got some books um, with me right here. Let me see here. Let me put a couple of these down. Um, So I like books. I, I like to read books. Um, I like to collect some books. I've moved more recently into Audible, and so I find myself listening to a lot more books than I do reading. But um, here's these are just some books that you would say maybe are some classics. So some of these books, um, maybe some of you have read. Some of these books, maybe somebody told you you should read at some point. Um, but these these are just kind of classics. That The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I mean, come on now. Like, that's a good book. It's a good classic one. This, this one of uh, the Prayer Life by Andrew Murray is a classic book on prayer. And if you ever want to know just kind of how can I how can I pray better, how can I grow in prayer, Andrew Murray's uh, the, the Prayer Life. Uh, this book here um, has probably shaped me more than any other really really old book other than the bible uh, it's andrew murray's absolute surrender um, really amazing book on just what does it look like to surrender all and walk in surrender um, then there's john maxwell's 21 irrefutable laws of leadership uh, Pastor Cole, our amazing new student ministry pastor, makes fun of me a lot because I quote John Maxwell a lot, uh, but he has shaped me. I've read many of his books. If you haven't read this one, it's kind of like the one that he's most known for. And then this is kind of the, the book that you want to have on your, uh, your bookshelf just because it's such a fat book and it looks really nice on your bookshelf but i will say other than it just looking really good on a bookshelf this is my favorite fictional book Um, it's alexander dumas the count of monte cristo the unabridged version Um, phenomenal phenomenal book and then david mccullough 1776 i love revolutionary war stuff Um, and then Great theological treaties, the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, all yes, uh, thank you for that. Um, so these are uh, these are some really good books, all amazing books. All have you know I, I've enjoyed reading them. But I've got another book here that is more than just a good book, um, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Is this book? the bible Um, and we call it the holy bible it's it's god's word um and and this book is different from all of these other books that i've talked about and from any other book that you could mention and the reason this book is different is because this book has the power to change lives and we have seen over history this This book has proven itself to be a book of power and a book of transformation because so many people's lives have been transformed by this book. Now, we don't worship this book, but we worship the one who this book points to. And and God's word communicates so clearly and points us so clearly to what it means to walk with God and be in relationship with God Uh, that it is so transformative in our lives and so today we are in the second week of a series we're just calling Big Questions and we're just we're looking at some really big questions that many of us have asked or are asking and we're looking at some questions that I guarantee you the people that you work with and live next to and go to school with are asking these these are some big questions That we need to know for ourselves, that we need to kind of work through. And some of us who maybe have been followers of Jesus and in church all our lives, we would just say, well, yeah, that's the Bible and, and we should believe it. But we've never really thought through why. And I'm hoping today we'll leave with a little bit more understanding of why we can put our trust in the Bible. But I also think it's important for those of you who are here, maybe online, and you're a little bit more skeptical, and you're like, I'm just not sure, you know, I've got some questions. My hope is, is that today we'll understand just why this book is the kind of book that we can totally put our hope in and our trust in. And so, um, let's, let's talk about the Bible's just impact on history. It Throughout history, it has made such an impact. There have been literally billions of copies of this book sold throughout time. It is the best-selling book of all time, and it is every year on the best-selling list still to this day, every single year. Uh, no matter what area of the world you look at, whether it's politics or art Or literature or law, you can see the fingerprints of the Bible impacting so many parts of our culture and our lives, not just here in America, but around the world. And people have been known to literally give up their lives and die for the ability to have their own copy of this book and to read this themselves. Why? What makes this book so powerful, so transformative? And so I want us to talk about that today. And if you missed that QR code that was in the video announcements uh, that has the QR code to the notes, if you're online, you can just scan that QR code on the screen. If you're in here and you don't have paper notes and you want to follow along on your smartphone or your device, you can scan that QR code Um, And you can also, if you raise your hand and you want paper notes, one of our amazing auditorium hosts back there will bring you some paper notes if you missed that opportunity and you'd like to take notes on paper. Um, We're just going to talk about three areas this morning. I I want us to talk about what is the composition and the content of the Bible. We we need to talk about that. Uh, We we need to just have a better understanding of that. I want to talk about what do we believe about the Bible I think it's one thing to know the composition and content it's another thing to know like what do we as Christians what are the statements of belief that we would say this is what we believe about this book and we're gonna spend the majority of our time in that second section together and then finally answering the question is it Trustworthy, And so for those of you who are like watching the clock and you're thinking, oh no, he only is so far and we only have this much time. Just know the second section is going to be a lot bigger than the third section. OK, so that'll just help you be at peace um, as we go through this. So uh, what's the composition and the content uh, of the Bible? So the Bible uh, consists of two major sections. there There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the word testament literally means covenant. That, that's what we mean when we talk about testament. Um, and, and covenant, uh, a testament or a covenant is a binding agreement. It's a binding legal agreement. And so some of you have a last will and testament. That is a binding legal agreement of what you want to happen with all of your stuff whenever you die it's a it's a testament it's a last will and testament and so when we talk about the new testament the old testament the new covenant and the old covenant we're talking about these binding agreements between God and us and so the old testament is the old covenant it, it is the it's the binding agreement that God made through Abraham and through Moses Uh, Through the promise to Abraham that I'm going to make a great nation out of your descendants. And and through what took place at Mount Sinai with Moses and the giving of the Ten Commandments. And God saying, uh, you will be my people and I will be your God. and, And if you'll do these things, I'll do these things. And it was this binding agreement in the Old Testament or this old covenant. But we also have a New Testament or a new covenant. And that is when Jesus was with his disciples at the Last Supper. And he takes the cup of wine and he said, this blood represents, a. this wine represents a new covenant made with my blood. And, and ultimately, Jesus was saying to the disciples that I'm going to create a new way for you to be in relationship with God. And through my blood being shed on a cross, through my death and through my resurrection, I'm going to make a new covenant, a new way for you to have a binding relationship between you and God. And so Jesus made this way for a new covenant or a, a new testament. And so uh, the, the New Testament is all about that new covenant that Jesus made. And the Old Testament is all about the Old Covenant. and So that's, that's what we have. But what's important for us to understand is these aren't two separate stories. I think it's important for us to understand that, that the New Testament, when, when you read the pages of the New Testament, it's not this separate document, but that the New Testament is a fulfillment of everything that was promised in the Old Testament. And So we absolutely, uh, as Christians would say, we believe that God is at work in both of these And we're thankful as followers of Jesus that we simply have the rest of the story. The Old Testament is hugely important to us, but it points to something that is fulfilled in the New Testament. We're so thankful that we have that. And so um, the Bible's content is made up of 66 individual books, 39 of them from the Old Testament. So that's one of your blanks. And there are 27 in the New Testament. So 39 in the Old, 27 in the New. And it was written over a period of 1,400 years. So that's just a a, a huge span of time. The Old Testament was was written over a span of about 1,000 years. And the New Testament was written over a span, depending on who you talk to, of somewhere between 40 and 50 years. But in between those, if you're doing the math and you're like 40 or 50 and 1,000, that's not 1,400. In between those, there was a silent period where God was not speaking through any prophets there was, there was literally what was known as just this silent period where, where God uh, was not speaking. That was why when John the Baptist came, it was such a big deal. It was the first time that the people had heard the voice of the Lord from a prophet um, for 400 years of this period of silence. And so this is, this is part of the reason when um, I'm hoping that after a message like today, uh, there will be a new desire for some of you to say, you know, I should read the Bible. And especially if you're online or you're here and you just you know, you haven't been reading the Bible and you, you, just, you, haven't, you haven't read it in a long time, you, you've, you've kind of disconnected from God's Word. And, and we hear a message like this and you say, I'm, I, you know what? I'm going to start reading the Bible. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to actually read it. And so what you do is you do what everybody does when they start reading the Bible. They go to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1, and you start reading the Bible. Now, what I want to tell you is you don't have to do that because this is 66 individual books. Now, there is a continuous story that goes on, but it's okay, particularly if you're new to the faith, if you're new to following Jesus Uh, maybe beginning with the stories of the life of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John would be the best place for you to start. Not that you can't start in Genesis, but I'm telling you, when you get the numbers in Leviticus, you're gonna slow down. Um, And so you you might want to maybe start in the New Testament, um, uh, but but it's okay to do that. As long as you start at chapter one, verse one of one of the books, you're okay because it's 66 individual books. Um, Now, as we think about this being one continuous story. I, I, wanna, I wanna show you a video. I, I, I was thinking about all the things that I could say and as we talk about the content and the makeup of the Bible. And there is an amazing video uh, by The Bible Project. And if you're not familiar with The Bible Project, after you watch this video, you're gonna wanna see more of these. Uh, but The Bible Project takes the Bible and helps us understand it visually. And so I want you to watch an eight-minute video that honestly does so much better a job than I could do in helping you understand how the Old Testament connects with the New Testament and the flow of how this is one continuous story and the content. So I want you to watch this video, and then we're going to jump back in, and we're going to look at what do we believe about the Bible. So watch this.
1: The New Testament If you open up a Bible to its table of contents, you'll see it's made up of two large collections, the Old and New Testaments. The word testament refers to a covenant partnership, which is what both of these collections are all about. They tell one epic and complicated story of God's covenant partnership with Israel and all humanity. The Old Testament is called Tanakh in Jewish tradition. It's a unified scroll collection of 39 Israelite texts that were over a 1,000 years in the making. In contrast, the 27 books of the New Testament all came into existence within 30 to 40 years of each other. They were all written by first-generation followers of Jesus. From an early period, Christian communities began collecting these texts and reading them alongside the Old Testament as one unified story that leads to Jesus. The New Testament begins with four narrative books that together are called the Gospel. They tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth's life, death, and resurrection as an announcement of good news. They're followed by a fifth narrative work called Acts of the Apostles. Here, the risen Jesus commissions the apostles, a word that means the sent ones. They're appointed as Jesus' representatives to spread the good news about him throughout the ancient world. After Acts comes a collection of letters from the apostles. These were written to provide teaching and guidance for local communities of Jesus' followers called churches. There are 13 letters connected to the Apostle Paul, and they're not arranged in the order of when they were written, but rather from the longest to the shortest. Then there's the letter to the Hebrews, written by a close but unnamed associate of the Apostles. After this are the letters of James, Jude, Peter, and John. Two were brothers of Jesus, and two were among his first followers. The last New Testament book is The Revelation, a letter to seven churches that reveals a prophetic word of challenge and comfort to all of Jesus' followers. So those are the books of the New Testament, but what are they about? And how do they connect with the Old Testament to make up one unified story? Think of it this way. The Bible is one long epic narrative with multiple movements or acts. The Old Testament recounts the first series of acts that give you everything you need to make sense of the story to follow. The core themes and the plot conflict are arranged in design patterns. And then in the New Testament, these are all picked up and carried forward to the story's culmination in Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. The first act is about God and all humanity. God provides a sweet garden temple for humans who are made to be God's partners in ruling the world. But the humans are foolish and they give in to a dark temptation and rebel against God's wisdom. So they're exiled into a wilderness where they start killing each other. They build cities that spread their selfishness and oppression leading up to the big bad city of Babylon. But God loves the world and its foolish humans, so he sets in motion a rescue plan by promising the arrival of a new human who will destroy the evil that has lured us into self-destruction. The next act of the biblical story is about God and Israel, and it develops the themes and patterns of the first act. God calls a new humanity out of Babylon into a sweet garden land. Abraham, Sarah, and his descendants, the Israelites. God promises that through them, divine blessing will be restored to all of the nations. Surely these are the new humans that we're waiting for, but the Israelites repeat humanity's rebellion against God, building their own violent cities that lead to self-destruction and another exile in Babylon. But God sustains his promise that the new human will come from Abraham's lineage. It will be a priest king who will now have to rescue both Israel and humanity from Babylon to restore God's blessing to the world. Now, notice how these two acts are designed according to the same pattern. The second act is a longer and more violent version of the first. And together, they explore the tragic human condition. But they also highlight God's promise, which is developed more in the next act, the Old Testament prophets and poets. The prophets accused Israel and all nations of their evil. And they announced that one day, God himself would arrive to bring the day of the Lord and deliver his world from Babylon. He would do it through a promised royal priest who's going to suffer like a slave and die for the sins of Israel and all humanity, but then he'll be exalted as king over the nations. He will call others to leave Babylon and join the new covenant people, who will partner with God to rule over a new Jerusalem, that is, over a new creation. And so the Old Testament concludes by anticipating a new act in the story. And when you turn to the New Testament, it's the same story, now being carried forward in Jesus. Let's see how. The four gospel accounts introduce Jesus of Nazareth, both as the promised son of Abraham, who will restore God's blessing to the nations, and also as that new human who will defeat evil and restore humanity to partnership with God. So Jesus is portrayed as a human, and more. He went about announcing the arrival of God's promised kingdom, and he spoke and acted as if he was Israel's divine king. But instead of calling himself king, Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, that is, the human one who would act like a servant. The Gospels are making the claim that in Jesus, Israel's God has become the faithful Israelite and the true human that we are all made to be but have failed to be. Jesus' mission was to confront that dark evil that lurks underneath humanity's evil, luring us into selfishness, violence, and death. But how do you defeat that kind of evil? The surprising answer in the Gospels is that Jesus overcame our evil by allowing it to kill him on his paradoxical throne, the cross, where Jesus died for humanity's evil and sin. And it's where he lived out what he taught, that nonviolence, forgiveness, and self-giving love are the most powerful things in the universe. And because God's love for his world is stronger than evil or death, Jesus was raised to new life as the prototype of a new humanity. And this brings us to the story of Acts. Through the Spirit, God empowers Jesus' followers to spread the life and love of Jesus out into the world, as they invite people to leave their old humanity and join Jesus' multi-ethnic family, the new humanity. This is where the letters from the apostles fit into the story. Here, the apostles address early Christian communities, and they show how the good news about the risen King Jesus changed history and should reshape every part of our lives. They also explained the good news by constantly appealing to stories from the old Testament and the stories of Jesus, showing us how to see our own life stories as part of the epic biblical story. So all humanity is trapped in a Babylonian exile, but Jesus came to create a new home. We're all living in different kinds of Egyptian slavery to selfishness and sin, but Jesus died as the Passover lamb to liberate us into the promised land. Our old humanity is bound for the dust of death, but Jesus' resurrection opened up a new future for a new humanity. We live here in the current evil age, but through Jesus and the Spirit, a new creation has burst open here and now. And this leads us to the book of Revelation, where the whole biblical story comes together in powerful symbolism and imagery. Jesus is portrayed as a slaughtered, bloody lamb, who is exalted as the divine king of the world. He's leading his people out of slavery and exile in Babylon. And as they resist Babylon's influence, they may have to suffer alongside their slain leader. But when you follow the risen king, not even death can prevent the dawn of the new creation, which is here depicted as a new Jerusalem garden temple, the true home of humanity after its long exile. And so on the Bible's last page, heaven and earth are reunited and the new humans take up their appointed task from the Bible's first page to rule the world together in the love and power of God. The New Testament is a remarkable collection of documents. They represent the testimony of the apostles that points us to the risen Jesus himself. And through God's spirit, these human words have been speaking a divine word of hope from the first century to the 21st. Each book shows how God, through Jesus and the Spirit, is leading our world to its ultimate goal in a renewed creation. And so the story's end is really the beginning of a new story that is yet to be told. And that's what the New Testament is all about.
0: Woo! could not have done all of that as quickly or as well. I mean, doesn't that help you kind of get a picture of how the Old Testament and the New Testament connect together? I'll give you a heads up that uh, in my e-note that's going out uh, later this week... Um, I'm going to send you a link to the Old Testament overview, um, and it's about 15 minutes, but I highly encourage you to watch that. Click on that link. I think you'll find it is just as engaging and helpful to see uh, the, the full picture of the Old Testament um, and how that connects in. And so um, I, I just think it's important for us to know the content, to know very clearly that we need the Old Testament so that the New Testament makes sense to us. They, this, this isn't, they're not two separate stories. One's not important and the other one not important. No, they're both important, but it is so good that we have the rest of the story with the New Testament and we know the answers. And so uh, the Bible isn't just a historical book though. And Christians for 2000 years have made claims and statements about the Bible, uh, that it is seen as more than just a, a, history of ancient Israel in the, in the old Testament and a history of kind of the early church in the new Testament. Uh, but it is a book that has been written by human hands, but it has been inspired and breathed life into by God himself. And it is God's word to us. And so we see this very clearly as a holy book As God's Word communicated to us as authored by God and inspired by God through the hands of humans and so in your notes you can write a few things down about what we believe about the Bible we believe it is God breathed and it is God directed um, or inspired you can write in there that that God was all was the initiator of this work he was the inspirer of this work and he was the one directing the 66 books of the old and new testament now And he he wasn't just inspiring the initial writing, but he continues to inspire because we believe that the Holy Spirit is at work. And whenever we read God's word or whenever we listen to God's word, the Holy Spirit continues to inspire and give us insight and wisdom and new life to understand how it applies to our life and how it can direct our lives in significant ways. And so we believe that it's God-breathed, we believe that it's God-directed. Uh, and we also believe that it is fully perfect in anything and everything that can lead us to salvation. Uh, that it is it is, it's God's perfect message to us of how we can go from being separated to God to being in relationship with God. So this gets confusing when you start thinking about um you know what? What was God's part and what was you know humanity's part in this? And I think this is where a lot of people get hung up on: is the Bible trustworthy? Uh, there was a story of a little girl in first grade who was sitting next to her mother in church and had her mother's Bible and was looking intently at the Bible and looked up at her mother and said, "Did God really write this?" And the mom, you know, looked at her, yes, yes, dear God, God really wrote this and little girl just stared at it more intently and finally looked up at her mom and said god has really neat handwriting um you know I, I i think um you know this this is you know what where is god's part in this where where is um humanity's part in this um god initiated the writing of the bible uh we we believe this is as followers of Jesus, we believe that it was God's idea. It wasn't our idea that we get a message from God, that it was God's idea. He's the one who initiated this. It was his, it was his desire and his intent to speak and communicate with us. Um, and so we, we believe that about this. Second uh, Peter one uh, twenty says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophets own interpretation in other words there wasn't a bunch of prophets in the old testament saying you know it'd be great if god would speak to us i think i'll you know i'll come up with something no that this was initiated by god himself the holy spirit was the one who moved upon the prophets and i'll just say for those of you who are here in the room um, on the back of your paper notes is actually a list of old testament prophecies that were fulfilled in the new testament and so as we talk about is the bible trustworthy one of the things especially if you're here and you're a doubter and you're someone who's a skeptical type person i just want to encourage you to doubt your doubts to be skeptical about your own skepticism and take some time to do some research and look at these old testament prophecies and their fulfillment Uh, sometimes five, eight hundred thousand years later um, in the the fulfillment of these prophecies. This is one of the ways that we know the Bible is trustworthy. And and we, we see here that it was God who initiated these prophecies. It was God who began this work. And so he inspired the writing. Uh, And he not only said, hey, this is my idea and I'm the one who's initiating this, but then he came alongside and he breathed life into the actual writing of these documents. And so in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says this, all scripture is God breathed. And is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And and so the the reason, again, that it's so important for us to begin this series on big questions with this sermon on, is the Bible trustworthy? We're going to use the Bible as our primary textbook for the rest of this series, as we do every Sunday, uh, to say, hey, how can we find the answers to life? And if we can't agree that the Bible is trustworthy, if we can't come to this understanding that that this book is authoritative and it's God's word to us, uh, then then we won't be able to address these other big questions uh, in the rest of this series. And so, um, again, in in your notes, we believe that it's, it's initiated by God, it's directed by God, and it's perfect. That this is... A perfect book and let me be clear about what we mean by that that it is perfect in everything you need to know to lead you into a relationship with God and I think it's important that we we explain what we mean by that because what we don't want to do is make claims for the Bible that the Bible never makes for itself we, we don't want to put ourselves in a posture where we're trying to defend something about the Bible that the Bible never intended to have be defended. Um, And so, um, to get some help with this, um, there's a a book, uh, Introduction to Wesleyan Theology, by a couple of really smart guys, way smarter than me, uh, Dr. William Greathouse and Dr. H. Ray Dunning. And this is just a small section of what they're saying that that has helped me with this. And then I wanna read this, and then I wanna give you an illustration that might help you with this. They just said this, the Bible, is not a book of science. It is not a book of secular history. It is a book of God. And what does that mean? It means its authoritative pronouncements in the Bible are theological in nature. Therefore, the inerrancy or infallibility of the Bible, in other words, its perfectness, is to be positive and defended on these grounds. Now, what do they mean by that? I, I think this is this has just been helpful. So you'll just have to. This is Brad Fink. I like the cookies on the low shelf. All right. So this is this is where I like to hang out. Um so I, I hear a lot of people that will try to like defend the Bible in places that the Bible never needs to be defended. In the sense of, there, there's people who be like, you know, I can't trust the Bible because it doesn't talk about dinosaurs. And what I want to say is like, the Bible's intent is not to talk about dinosaur. That, that's not why the Bible was written to tell us about that stuff. It's, it, you know, like the scientific things that, that people want to fall on their sword on. Is this a trustworthy book? Even when it comes to seven-day creation and, you know, how old is, the, is the, the earth and all these things. Listen, church, I just want us to know that w- when you look at the creation story, the, the sun and the moon weren't created until it wasn't the first day. When God said, let there be light, there was still no sun. And we don't know how long that first day was. And, and the intent of the Bible is not to teach us scientific, historical things. And, and so there are a lot of Christians that would say, everything in my faith has to be that the earth is this old. Or, and then, so then when, when carbon dating comes around, and science comes around, and they say, well, you know, the earth looks like it's this old. It shatters their faith. The, the purpose of the Bible is not to tell us how old the earth is. The purpose of the Bible is not to tell us where dinosaurs are and how all that, and here, here's the way I think about it. The Bible doesn't talk about red ants, okay? But I know they exist. <laughs> Because they have bitten me like right between my toes, you know, like right there when they get you. And like they're just hanging on and it's like, oh, it hurts so bad. I know those suckers exist, but the Bible doesn't talk about them because that's not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to tell me and to tell you how humanity fell, how humanity separated from God and God's plan to bring us back into right relationship. And I'll tell you, it is perfect in everything that you need to know in order to be brought into right relationship with God. But it might not talk about dinosaurs, and that's okay. And it might not talk about all these other things, and that's okay. That's not the point of this book. The point of this book is to lead us into a right relationship with God, and it's perfect in everything in that area. And if we would start defending it on what the Bible says it's for, instead of trying to defend it for things that the Bible never even says for itself, we would find that we didn't have to fight as many battles with the world, but we could come to some common ground and understand that this book is an authoritative book from God to us, on how to be in right relationship with God. So what is God's part in this? And what is man's part? I'll give you an, an analogy um, that I hope will be a helpful analogy for you. And like all analogies, this falls apart at certain places. It's not a perfect analogy. It's not, uh, it's not infallible by any means, but I hope it'll be helpful for you. Um, if we would think about God's word as God's authorized biography, it would help us. So when you think about what is an authorized biography, I think you'll have a better picture of what God's word is for us. Now, if you wonder, well, what is God's autobiography? God's autobiography is Jesus Christ, because we see in John that the word became flesh. And so, All of the pages in the world couldn't fill up all of who God is. And so there is no autobiography written, but the autobiography of God is literally Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh, and we see the most perfect picture of who God is in Jesus, that that Jesus is God in flesh. But when we think of God's Word to us, this is an authorized biography. Now, the thing about, if you're not like a into biographies, anybody can write a biography. Anybody can write a biography about anybody. You could just start writing a biography. But to have an authorized biography, what that means is, is if somebody came to you and said, hey, I want to write a biography about you, for you to make that your authorized biography, then you have total control of what goes in that biography you have total control about the formation of that biography and the flow of that biography, that when you have an authorized biography, someone else is writing it, but you have the ultimate say in what goes in it, what doesn't go in it. I had somebody ask me after the first service, they said, you know, somebody had asked them how do I know, you know that this, you know, this is true? I mean, man has been involved, people have been involved, humans have written this, how do I know it's really trustworthy? And, and their response was, they said, I don't, I don't know if this was a good response, but my response was, was, well, if this is truly God speaking, don't you think God's big enough and powerful enough to make sure that people didn't mess it up? And I was like, that's a great response. Like That's actually a, a wonderful response. If we believe that God is the creator of the universe who spoke everything into existence, Don't we believe he's powerful enough to ensure that his word is communicated clearly in the way he wants? And so this is God's authorized biography to us. And uh, he gave permission, he gave influence, and he had ultimate say in what went in it, what didn't go in it, and how it was flowed. And so, uh, but we also need to understand That God was the authorizer, that's on one hand, of his biography, and he influenced every part of it. But we also need to know it was written by human hands. And it was written by people that had human perspectives. And God inspired it and God breathed into it, but it was written by people. And, And if we don't hold on to both of those truths, we get into trouble. Um, that, that God didn't take the Apostle Paul and the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these people and put them into a trance while they were sitting in a desk you know, and move their hands. That's just not how this worked. God didn't do that. In fact, if God would have done that for all of the authors of Scripture, if he would have put them into a trance and they would have written this all down, then what you would find is that every single book would look the same. They would have the same feel. They would have the same tenor to it. They they would have the same characteristics to it. But what you find as you read these 66 books is they're very unique. They're very different. Some of them were written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and some of them were written in Greek, uh, that they had different writing styles, that some of them sounded like South Texans, and some of them sounded like New Yorkers, you know. What I mean, it was just like there was just different feels to how they communicated, and and there was there was their own personalities and styles and historical perspectives involved in the writing. And so you could kind of call God this senior editor, who really was overseeing and leading and guiding and and really giving pr- inspiration and process to the whole thing, but it was written by people. This is the reason it shouldn't bother us when you read something in the Old Testament and and there seems to be this perspective and then there's another place in the Old Testament where there's another perspective and you go, well, see, those seem to contradict themselves and, and, you know, well, that makes the Bible untrustworthy. No, that doesn't make the Bible untrustworthy. What that means is it was written by two different people who had very different perspectives, that shouldn't shake our faith up. It was written by people, but it was inspired by God. It's the reason when you read in Matthew and you read in Luke and you read the same miracle story and it feels like maybe there's some different things that are talked about or different perspectives. It doesn't, but well, see, now the Bible's not trustworthy. No. It doesn't mean it's not trustworthy. What it means is you have two unique individuals who are witnessing the same event and they're witnessing it from a different perspective and you get different things from each different individual as they share and as they write the encounter that they had. I think when we understand that it was inspired by God, it was directed by God, it was edited, he was the chief editor and he had total control of what went in it and the flow of it but it was written by people who had unique perspectives and very human lives, we understand how the Bible comes together. And so if, you've, if you're not paying attention, if you've tuned out, you don't miss this, because this is so important. If you don't hear anything else said today, don't miss this. If you forget either one of these... That it was inspired and directed by God, and he was the chief editor, and everything in there is from God, or you forget it was written by human hands, you can get into big trouble. And here's how: if you forget that this was inspired by God, directed by God, that he was the chief, that, that there's nothing in here that God didn't authorize, because He's it's his authorized biography, then what'll happen is you'll say. Well, I really like this part. This is this is a keeper right here. That sounds kind of hard. I'm going to throw that part out. I don't like that part. That's uncomfortable for me. I'm not going to... Um, you know what? This section over here, I'm going to really live my life by because that's a good segment. I'm all for that. But this section over here, uh, I mean, that's... Just, that's kind of the hard teachings. And I, you know, that, I'm just, so I'm going to take, I'm going to pick and choose. I like this. I don't like that. I'll hang on to this. I'll throw that out. If we forget God was the editor and God was the initiator and this was God breathed, then we'll begin to pick and choose what we want to listen to, what we want to follow, what we want to obey. And that will get us into some serious, serious trouble. But on the other hand, if we forget the other part, that human beings were the people who wrote this, that it was inspired by God, but it was written through the hands of others, then suddenly we have to create all kinds of interesting and intricate theological arguments to try to make it all work together and to try to fight against the the arguments that we try to fight against science and history and, and carbon dating. And and, and we try to like make all of these really big arguments instead of just saying, you know what, that there, it was written from a human perspective and, and it was inspired by God. But the point of this was to lead us into a relationship with God and it's perfect And everything that we need to lead us into a relationship with God and to defend the Bible on what the Bible says it should be defended on. If we forget either one of those, we can get into trouble. And we need to remember that the Bible is not just a book. We believe this is God's word to us. We believe that God has spoken. And through this, our lives can be changed. And for thousands of years, people's lives have been changed by the active and powerful and alive Word of God. So here's the big question. Is it true? Is it true? Um, Satan, and I, in order to answer this question, I, I actually need to go back and we need to read a portion of Scripture from Genesis chapter 3 because Satan's strategy from the very beginning of time has not changed. he's really not creative. He just kind of keeps doing the same thing over and over and over. And we just keep falling for it. Like humanity is really, you know, we just, we kind of keep falling for the same things over and over and over again. And what you see is in Genesis chapter three, verses one through five, it says this, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? So you see how he's already twisting God's word. And, like, did God really say you couldn't eat any fruit? To, like, you, just, you had to look at all this fruit and, and not, not eat any of it? Verse 2 says, Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. And God said, you must not eat of it or even touch it. And if you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened. And as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. I just I want to just pause us here for a second. In your notes, there's a few blanks, but before we go through those three, I just want you to I want you to hear this. The same thing Satan tells you, the same thing Satan tells me, the same thing that Satan tells everybody in the world when it comes to God's word. He's been saying since the beginning, and this is the pattern, and it's the same pattern over and over and over. And here it is. Number one, doubt God's word. Doubt God's word. Did God really say? That's that's the first question. That's, That's why in the beginning of this series, we've got to address this question first. Is this book trustworthy? The answer is yes. Satan's lies have never changed. Is God really trustworthy? Did he really say this or that? He's just been trying to create doubt about what God has said forever. And the second step is this, to deny the consequences of sin. After he created doubt about God's word, the second thing he did is he said, you know, um, you won't really die. I mean, I know, I know God said you would die, but you won't really die. The that he creates doubt about the consequences of sin. And so, um, you know, hey, I, I'm not sure I can trust this. I know God says that there are consequences to sin, but I'm not sure that I believe those consequences, that I believe in those things. And then the last thing is this, to doubt God's goodness. That the, the serpent says, listen, you know what? The reason God doesn't want you to eat that fruit is because if you eat that fruit, you're going to be like God. That God is keeping something good back from you. There's something good that God doesn't want you to experience, and he's holding it back from you. And so, you know, God's not good, and he's trying to keep good things from you. This is the same pattern for us that he still tells us. This this isn't really trustworthy, Satan would tell you. Is that really God's word? I mean, can you really trust it? And, And then, You know, you don't have to really believe that there's consequences to the sin in your life. And then ultimately, that, you know, God's trying to keep good things from you. And so you hear people say, well, you know what? The Bible, the Bible's telling me I can't do this and I can't do that. And and, and somehow there's all these good things over here and the Bible's trying to keep me away from those. No, God knows what's best. God loves us. God created us. He has a good plan for us. And when he says don't do that, he's saying don't do that for a very good reason because he knows the pain and the consequences of what doing that will lead to. And no matter how many lies Satan tells us, that no, 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 no. he's trying to keep something good from you, the truth of the matter is God's word is trustworthy. The truth of the matter is that there are consequences to sin. And the truth of the matter is, is that God is good and he loves us and he has a good plan for us. And this is the roadmap to his best plan for our lives. But we've got to read it. and We've got to know it. I just want to give you three more passages of scriptures and then we're going to close. But it, these aren't uh, in your notes, but you might want to just make a note about these. Um, one of the interesting things about the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, is there's this, this adamant claim of scripture to check out the facts for yourself. And so especially for those of you who are a bit on the skeptical side, you just need to know that the Bible actually says, hey, check this out for yourself. Look into this. See if this isn't true. Um, and there's, there's no reason for the Bible to do that if it weren't true. This is an interesting passage in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. It says, A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why does the Bible say Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus? Unless that the reason that piece of information is added in is because the writer of the New Testament wanted you to go check out with Rufus and Alexander. Hey, was this true? The reason that that piece of information was added in was because this was so accurate. You could go ask Rufus. You could go ask Alexander that there there were people that knew Rufus that were reading this original letter. There were people that knew Alexander. They could, yeah, that's right. I remember we went and my, they grabbed my dad. and he, I mean, they could tell the story. There, was this, there were details of intricate, check this out for yourself. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, it says this. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. So Paul is saying, hey... There's a whole bunch of people that saw Jesus after he rose from the, go talk to them, go check this out, go verify this. This, there were many people that saw this and witnessed it. And the resurrection of Jesus was so important in Acts chapter 26, verses 25 and 26, it says this, but Paul replied, I'm not insane. Most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is the sober truth. And King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak boldly, for I am sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. Paul said, Listen, Jesus' life, his testimony, the miracles that he performed, the resurrection. This this wasn't done in a corner. This wasn't done in secret. This was done out in the public eye. Check this out for yourself. This is authoritative because of the life change that it has brought into so many people. It's authoritative because we see God's hand woven through the prophecies in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament. It's authoritative because in the New Testament, there were all kinds of people. When this was written in this span of about 30 to 50 years, there were people who were alive who witnessed the events. This wasn't done a thousand years after the life of Jesus. The New Testament was written while people who were still alive said, Yeah, I saw that. Go ask Rufus. He was the son of the guy who had to carry the cross. Go check it out with Rufus. He'll tell you. I mean, I think about even in that video when we it, it talked about James, and Jude, brothers of Jesus, how, how much would it take for you to convince one of your siblings that you were the Son of God? What would that take, right? And yet, siblings of Jesus said, no, 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 we believe he was the Son of God. Why? Because he rose from the grave and nobody does that. Nobody does that other than the Son of God. This is God's authorized biography. It is his love letter from God to us. It's a road map to how to live our lives. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It will convict you of times that you need to be convicted. It'll show you where you're wrong so that you can turn to the right. It will encourage you when you need encouragement. It will give you life when you need life most. This book has power, but only if you read it. You say, "Well, I hate to read." Listen to it then on U version while you drive. Listen to it, read it, consume it, allow it to fill you. Because if you do, it can change your life. But we've got to let it speak. I'm going to pray for you and pray that God would give us a new hunger for his word. Father, I just, uh, I pray right now that you would help us to, because of your Holy Spirit that is here with us, that is with each and every person who's watching online, Lord, I I pray that you would would help us understand the truth of what we've talked about today, that that you would open up our eyes to the the history and the power of of your word, your authorized biography, Lord, I pray that some of the the questions and the doubts that maybe Satan has thrown up to us, we would just see with great clarity that that his lies have always been around, that he's been saying the same thing over and over and over. God's not trustworthy. There's really not consequences to your sin. That that ultimately God isn't good, and He's trying to keep you away from something that is really good. And Lord, whenever He tells us those lies, I pray that we would we would long for your truth and that we would look to your word to find your truth i pray for those who are maybe not followers of you yet and they're still really skeptical and they're full of doubts god i pray that today that they would begin to just doubt their own doubts they would just be skeptical about their own skepticism that they would be willing to check out the fact claims of your word They would be willing to seek out truth in every place. God, I pray for those who are your followers. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for the times that we have allowed your living and powerful and active and alive word to sit and collect dust on our shelves, on our coffee tables, on our nightstands. God, I pray that you would create a new hunger in your people to read your word and be transformed by it. And Lord, when we cry out, I wish we could hear from God. I wish we could hear from God. And you're saying, I've spoken so clearly. Would you pick up my word? And would you read it? I pray that we would begin to do that anew and afresh in the weeks to come. And we ask these things in the mighty and the holy and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.